welcome to FinTech's DEI Discussions podcast series. This is the Women of FinTech chapter and we are here today to celebrate the wins, raise awareness of the challenges and walk the talk for change across the entire financial technology industry. Today we are joined by Stephanie Coleman, Principal of EYUS People Advisory Services. She is here to share how she walks the talk for inclusion in our sector and what more she wants done. Stephanie, it's great to have you with us today. Super excited. Tell us a little bit about your role at EY. Thanks, Nadia. It's so great to be here. I am a partner in our workforce advisory practice out of New York, Australian originally. You might be able to tell from my accent. And I specialize in the financial services sector, in particular working with, with large banks in, in the banking capital market space on any talent-related topic. You know, we've been doing a lot of thought around the workforce of the future, we've seen more disruption over the last three years than we have in the last 30 years around innovation in the ways that we're working. It's a really exciting time to be doing the kind of work that I do talking about workforce related issues across the sector. Yeah, super exciting time. And I know that EY has recently uh, released a report around Gen Z talent and breaking into financial services. I would love for you to share a bit of that with us. Yes, I'd be happy to. So the background here is we, amongst a a bunch of other banking leaders in the firm, we concluded that we needed to get a point of view together around what the future of work was going to look like in banking and capital markets. And in particular, what that means for an inbound generation of talent into the workforce, the Gen Z. So these are folks aged between 13 and 26 who are making early and entry-level career decisions. So we asked ourselves this, the presenting question was, do my kids want to work in a bank? And we debated this and did some research and and tried to figure out the appeal of the banking sector for uh, Gen Z talent. And the conclusion that we drew was this, this could be a really wonderful sector for the Gen Z to come in and enter into. But there are some barriers that need to be dismantled and some changes that need to be made in order to take advantage of that opportunity. We then narrowed in on six key hypotheses. So the first of those was around radical progress on the D, E and I agenda. We know that the Gen Z feel very passionately about social equality and they expect to work in an environment that reflects the communities in which we live. There's been some great progress that has taken place across the sector to move the needle on this topic, but it's not going far enough, particularly at the executive ranks and in the front office where earnings potential is the highest. We also talk a little bit in our research around eliminating antiquated jobs and changing the notion of career. And what we mean by that is that there are jobs in in banks that are built off outdated operating models that assume largely on-site work, that rely on heavily manual processes and are not taking advantage of the digital innovation and and enablers that are being developed every day. We think that for the next generation, there needs to be a modern menu of jobs. We're hearing about a lot of really exciting ones, ethical hackers, holistic financial wellness advisors, product designers, employee experience designers, and so on. And so we think those roles need to be very much projected out as the types of positions that young people can be applying for. We also think that the idea of career is changing. Gone are the days of a company for life, a career for life. What research tells us is that the Gen Z like to experiment. 
and they expect to experience multiple different jobs, even careers across the course of their working life. Organisations need to be ready to provide and systematise that kind of mobility within their organisations in order to capture the interest of the Gen Z. A third topic that we hit on is around learning modernisation. And if you think about this generation and the way that they've been educated through high school and, and college, is it's very different to what preceding generations have experienced. A lot of this is on-demand learning material. They're used to snackable content. They like to be able to consume learning all around them. And so organizations need to be able to provide that modern learning experience to their people as well. Um, that means less time boxing, less a structured classroom style learning, and much more of a move to an on-demand snackable model. Our fourth hypothesis is around tech and data talent. It is no surprise, every single bank that I talk to and FinTech firm that I talk to is looking for the cream of the crop. They're all wanting to get access to the best tech and data talent. And historically, that kind of talent has wanted to work um, in big tech firms. Banks are now starting to think about how do we position aspects of our business as a technology company? How do we be positioned as the place for young technologists to come and work? How do we give them access to the most leading edge innovative projects? How do we think about constructing really dynamic and rich career paths for these folks? And then, of course, compensation. How do we start to um, make sure that the value of this talent in the market is really reflected in the compensation packages being offered? Our fifth hypothesis is around purpose and social impact. And in the financial services sector, there is a lot of that. If you think about the role that banks play in financial inclusion and helping provide access, affordable access to financial services to populations that have historically been alienated, that's a powerful concept, right? And a great demonstration of positive social impact. The role that banks are playing in solving for the climate crisis through climate risk programs through sustainable finance and so on are other great examples there. But sometimes these stories and these proof points around the social impact that can be achieved by working in large banks can be drowned out by the noise. So the bank failures, the regulatory breaches and so on. So we think there's an opportunity to flip the script. The narrative needs to be much more around the community impact, the greater good, and less focus on some of the negativity that sometimes surrounds this, this sector in the media. And then our final hypothesis is around having a really dynamic culture for young people where flexibility is a part of the equation, where wellness is valued and respected, and where radical transparency exists. And this is a really interesting one because a lot of the Gen Z have been digitally enabled from a very early stage in their lives. They are used to obtaining real-time information in their day-to-day -day activities. Um, the classic example I like to think of is a car service. So they want to go somewhere, they can plug in where they want to go into their device. They'll get told, they get told where their driver is, how long the trip is going to take, where the driver is and the process to picking them up, how much it's going to cost. These sorts of real-time updates are likely to become an expectation in the employment experience as well. So we can imagine an environment where the Gen Z is saying, well, how long is it going to take me to get promoted to the next level? What exactly do I need to do there? How does my compensation look compared to other people? What are the performance factors you're evaluating me against and so on? And so this is 
a degree of transparency that is not commonly seen, which we think is going to become a bit more prevalent as we move into kind of the, the years ahead of us. Now, I know a lot of the listeners in this podcast are very focused on fintech, and we have uh, dug in a little bit to some of the nuances in the fintech environment. The two most notable differences are that you know, the, the fintech firms don't struggle as much with getting talent in the door, but what they do struggle with is keeping talent. Right? There's there's a lot of mobility across sectors, people kind of job hopping quite a bit um, amongst the Gen Z within that set, that part of the industry. Um, and there are two levers that we think could help address that problem. The first is maintaining a startup culture through periods of growth. Many fintechs are looking to scale and expand their footprint, but sometimes with that expansion comes a loss of some of those entrepreneurial and startup attributes, which are appealing to talent in the first place. So as you grow more risk, more controls, more governance, more hierarchy, which starts to distill some of the entrepreneurial and startup culture, which is exciting. So the way that firms are handling this is they're thinking about their decision-making frameworks. They're trying to delegate decisions down to the lowest possible layer that they can in the organization to give employees agency to help them make quick decisions on the job, which go back to sort of resembling some of those startup cultures that they were attracted to in the first place. The second difference in the fintechs is really thinking about, is the fully remote model the right one? And most fintechs have gone there differently to banks and have concluded that this is what the people want. However, it's not perfect. And the key challenges that fintechs experience in this regard is creating a sense of loyalty and creating bonds from across the workforce, one individual to another, and also giving people the learning experiences they need very early on in their tenure in a new organization to become proficient in their role. So we're now seeing a bit of a movement into you can be fully remote as a kind of general guide, but we do need you back in the office for some very intentional work. And those will be things like team building activities, offsites, um, learning programs, big collaboration sessions and so on. And some are even going so far as to fund travel um, so that they can get, get people back to participate in some of those monumental events. So that's the Nadia, the, the sort of whistle-stop tour of some of the work that we've been doing and our point of view across Gen Z in the sector. Super interesting. And thank you for sharing some of those highlights. So many points in there really resonate with, with my experience and what I'm seeing across the sector as well. There was something that you touched upon around the perception of the space. And I wanted to ask your opinion on how do we build trust and attract more people to financial services in general? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things in that question. The first is I think it's around growing empathetic leaders. These are leaders who look in the mirror every day and ask themselves, am I a good leader and what can I be doing more of? These are leaders that are capable of walking in the shoes of others and making decisions with the perspectives of others in mind. And we're seeing a lot more focus now on sort of building that that type of leader. I also think we are humans of creature. We are creatures of, of habit, I should say, and creatures of community. And we typically like to be with other people. And when you're with other people, you create bonds with one another and you, you earn trust. So I do think having some kind of 
on-site working experience and some formality around bringing people together is very important in building bonds and creating trust across teams and between employees and managers. The other point on trust, I think, is around transparency. People are skeptical if they don't know what's going on, if they don't understand how their compensation is determined, how their performance outcome was determined, how their promotion prospects look. Um, it's very easy to assume the worst. And so firms that can speak objectively and explain how some of these processes work are more likely to earn trust than those that kind of keep some of these ideas secret. And then the final thing here is walking the talk. A lot of fintechs and banks have a big ambition around making the world a better place, being able to demonstrate how the organisation is doing that every day hardwiring some of those aspirations into people's jobs, into their performance measures, establishing metrics to show progress against those goals and communicating those often is really important in portraying authenticity around an organization's vision and purpose, which is often what has attracted uh, an employee to an organization in the first place. Yes, super interesting. And and so much that we can learn from there. I love the phrase, walk the talk. I use it all the time. And I think it's that genuine ability to drive action rather than just talk about desire Um, and I love how you've spoken us through that. Something that's really important is uh, the ability to foster genuine diversity and its inclusion within a business. I know that you're incredibly passionate about that. You have mentioned that a quick way to lose trust is actually within token appointments and focusing on that diversity rather than inclusion of it. So I just wanted you to share some thoughts on that as well please. Yeah, that was, I, this is a really interesting question. And I agree that token appointments can be dangerous. And so if it's not intuitive, what that means, that there's the inference there that a token appointment is someone that's been hired, not on the basis of merit um, or skills or capabilities, but in order to satisfy some kind of diversity outcome. And where candidates that do not possess the requisite skills or knowledge who are diverse, go into those roles and that that can be a high risk situation if they don't succeed because it can take the diversity discussion back a few chapters. So it's really important to make sure that the diverse candidates that are being put forth tick all the right boxes as would be the case for any other candidate going into these kinds of roles and also to support these candidates once they're in the position in the same way that you would any other leader. So this means giving them a platform, giving them access to your network, giving them resources, empowering them to make decisions and so on. Without having that supportive infrastructure around them, it's going to be very hard to to succeed, diverse or non-diverse. So I think my message here is always put forward qualified candidates regardless of diversity status, support new managers and executives in their role, because that is the only way folks are, are going to succeed. Absolutely. And, and again, so much to learn from there. Within the report, you spoke about hybrid work models. It's not perfect, but you also spoke about employee satisfaction and feelings of belonging. So I just wanted you to delve a bit deeper into your learns on those subjects too. Yeah, hybrid work is such an interesting topic and it can be in some cases quite a polarising topic as well. So I I think what is interesting about this topic is you have this tension between belonging on one side and flexibility on the other because what hybrid does is it allows you a lot more flexibility to balance your work and your personal life and work in a model that kind of complements your lifestyle. And for 
some uh, employees and, and especially in some diverse employee groups, that flexibility is priceless, right? And we know that people, you can't unsee the pandemic, right? Everyone has gotten used to a degree of flexibility beyond what they probably had before the pandemic and, and expect some semblance of flexibility to continue into the future. But on the other hand, by not being in the office very much, it's very difficult to build bonds with people, including your manager. It's harder to benefit from the apprentice learning model. It is harder to make work friends. Often when you're leaving an organisation, the hardest thing about leaving is leaving your friendship group behind and all the colleagues that you spent so much time with over the course of your tenure there. That's the tension. My personal view on this is that flexibility has to continue on in some form. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the form of hybrid work. Flexibility can be provided in other ways through flexible vacation programs, through leave purchase programs, through sabbatical programs, through flexible benefits and so on. And that um, some intentionality in the office and bringing people together with purpose is really important. I think there are lots of different variants on the hybrid model. They don't look the same in any organization. They're all trying on different models for size to see what, what fits. But for me, it's a kind of balance between giving people the flexibility they need, but also creating some community by getting people in the office and, and, and collaborating in person. Yeah, and I really appreciate that every model is slightly different for every organization because every organization in a different stage of their life cycle. Tell us a bit more on what you've seen for how leaders can cater to the evolving needs of their workforce. Yeah, so I think we talked a little bit about this idea of empathetic leaders and the sorts of leaders who are able to put themselves in the shoes of their team and relate. So that's definitely something that we're seeing more and more interest in. We're also seeing a push for leaders that think in the we and not me mentality. So how do we collectively as a team get to the outcome that we need to get to? Not how do I as the leader of this team steer this ship and get everybody from A to B? So just that sort of subtle shift in mentality and, and the way that is projected through communications and delegation of work to the team and how teams are making their decisions and things like that is a, a bit of a shift in tone that we're starting to see. The other thing is just the the, the role modelling. So if, if the organisation says we're committed to flexibility, you can, you know, you, you can work from home on a Friday and leaders are not doing that and they're coming in, oftentimes the team will follow the cue of the leader. The signals that leaders are sending are really important and powerful from a cultural standpoint and having sort of leaders that are demonstrating the right behaviours that you're looking for in your organisation is going to set the tone for how everybody else behaves. And the one final point I will make on this is around the discussion of social issues in the workplace. And we're now seeing social or corporate activism becoming much more common where CEOs and executives are talking about big social movements like social injustice and so on. And down in the more of the middle layers of management, Oftentimes, uh, you'll find managers are not comfortable talking about these topics because they don't know how and they're worried about saying the wrong thing and well, the sensitivities around some of these topics. But by and large, diverse employees appreciate the attempt. 
And so increasingly, I'm encouraging people to talk about some of the issues that affect the workforce, which might not fit between the the boundaries of the workplace, because it shows authenticity and it shows empathy and things like that as well. Yeah, and thank you for sharing those thoughts. Um, This podcast, I always introduce it as we're here today to walk the talk for change. And I love having my final question focusing on what everyone should be doing. Um, and really engaging our audience um, to be more active in fostering workplace inclusion. So if you could leave us with one thing, what more should we all be doing to foster genuine, authentic workplace inclusion? I want to give you three, but I'll keep them short. Three is good. (laughs) (laughs) I think the first is acknowledge that inclusion is everybody's job. It is not just the chief diversity officer and supporting team. It is not just the C-suite. It is every single person in the organization plays a role in creating an inclusive environment. The second just tip that I would suggest is, as you're thinking about pulling together a team to work on a project or getting a bunch of people on a call to discuss something that you need to discuss at work, always be thinking, who else? Who's got the diverse skill set that we haven't thought about here? Who's going to bring a new perspective that we don't have represented? So that constant asking oneself who else is going to help you bring in more people who think and act differently to help you solve your problem. And then the third is listen to diverse employees. Employee engagement surveys, exit surveys, pulse surveys, focus groups, whatever channel you like. You could even dig into the affinity groups to to glean insights from some of these populations and understand their lived experiences in the organization and respond, right? Take the information, analyze it, detect the key themes, and then put interventions in place that are going to create greater levels of inclusion within the culture. Amazing. You've shared so many brilliant insights and the report itself, it's brilliant that you've taken us on that whistle stops tour. It's been such a learning experience. Thank you for joining me on Fintech's DEI Discussions podcast series. You're welcome. Thank you, Nadia. (laughs) 